0: to move this thing. I don't like these things. They get in the way. I I once saw an opera, like literally once, and at one point in the opera, a guy was expecting this very large piece of scenery to move, and it just didn't move. And he broke out of Italian, and he said, in this theatre, you have to do everything yourself, and he starts pushing this large piece. I've never had the chance to do that in real life. Um, So Professor Halverson is absolutely right. President Halverson, I should say, that his little brother is one of my favorite people in the world. When I first heard that there was, at Princeton, a philosopher who was a very serious Christian, I actually felt angry because I'd spent the previous five years trying to root out Christians at some of the top secular universities in the world and like, make them talk about their faith. And nobody had told me about Hans. So this afternoon and tomorrow morning, I'm going to tell you about Hans in case his big brother hasn't. But before that, we're going to talk about Harry Potter, because I'm English, so we've got to talk about Harry Potter, okay? Rosie, you've all read Harry Potter, right? Like, if you haven't, then you actually probably should leave the room now, because I'm going to drop one hell of a spoiler. Sorry, a terrible spoiler. That wasn't even appropriate language. <laughs> <laughs> Things can only get better from here, people. So if you remember in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, J.K. Rowling sticks a knife into her readers' hearts. Professor Dumbledore is the, the Gandalf of the series, the only man whose power for good can match Lord Voldemort's evil. But in the sixth book, a weakened Dumbledore stands at the top of the astronomy tower, surrounded by his enemies, and he appeals to Harry's teacher nemesis, Severus Snape, for help. Severus, please. Please. And Snape kills him. The scene is devastating. We never liked Professor Snape, but we hoped beyond hope that he was Dumbledore's man, and now his betrayal of his mentor is complete. It's only in the last book that we realise how wrong we were. When Harry extracts memories from the dying Snape's mind, do you remember that? And he pours them into the Pensieve, that magical bowl where you can dive into somebody else's past... And there we discover that everything that Snape has done has been driven by his passionate, hopeless, unrequited love for Harry's mother. We see Snape's anguish as Lily Potter is murdered by Voldemort and how he thenceforth commits himself to Dumbledore. We hear Dumbledore telling Snape that he is dying from the slow workings of an irreversible curse and makes Snape promise to kill him when the moment comes and suddenly the meaning of, Severus, please is reversed. When our non-Christian friends glance over at the Christian faith, they see an awful lot of things that look like snake killing Dumbledore. They see a white-centred religion with a history of racism and scriptures that condone slavery. They see an anti-intellectual mindset and a contradictory Bible that's been disproved by science again and again. They see homophobia, the denigration of women, and a refusal to acknowledge that love is love. In this cultural moment, it's tempting to think that the sands are running out on Christianity, that the best thing that we can do is batten down the hatches and cling on for dear life as the waves of secularization wash over us. But if that's what you think, I believe we got that quite wrong. The sands aren't running out of Christianity, they're running in. And we have the opportunity to turn each of these terrible roadblocks to the gospel into signposts to Christ. But in order to grasp that opportunity, I believe there are four things that we must do. Number one, we must reclaim diversity. Number two, we must reclaim the university. Number three, we must reclaim morality. And number four, we must reclaim sexuality. But we must do all of these things with humility, and not by watering the scriptures down, but by lapping them up. So number one, we must reclaim diversity. On the 23rd of February of last year, Nigerian street preacher Olawale Elisanmi stood outside a train station in London, preaching to the commuters as they went by. Two white British police officers came up to him and gave him a choice, go away or be arrested. I will not go away, Mr. Illasami replied, because I need to tell them the truth, and Jesus is the only way the truth and the life. Nobody wants to listen to that, said one of the officers. They want you to go away. You don't want to listen to that, Mr. Illasami replied. You will listen when you are dead. You will listen when you are dead. And so he was arrested. we make of this? Are we encouraged by our brother's faith? I certainly am. Are we reminded that preaching the gospel always comes at a cost, and that we Western Christians have got far too used to a comfortable life, for sure? But a black African Christian preaching the exclusive message of Jesus while white Westerners block their ears is a little parable for the religious world today. Forty years ago, sociologists thought that the tide was going out in religion. As the world became more educated, more modern, more scientific, religious belief would naturally decline. It had happened in Western Europe, and where Western Europe led, so the assumption went, the rest of the world must follow. That prophecy has failed. Not only has the world not become less religious in the last 40 years, but as sociologists now look out over the next 40 years to 2060, they anticipate an increasingly religious world. Right now, Christianity is the largest global belief system, with about 31% of the world identifying as Christian. And that is set to increase slightly to 32% by 2060. Islam is set to increase significantly from about 25% to 31%, making it a very close competitor with Christianity. Hinduism and Buddhism are both set to decline slightly. And the proportion of people who do not identify with any religious tradition, including atheists, agnostics, and people who just check none on the census, is set to decline from 16% to 13%. The tide isn't going out on religion. It's coming in. this comes as a surprise to our non-Christian friends. But what's perhaps even more surprising is that Christianity is the belief system of diversity. Today, Christianity has the most even racial, cultural, and geographic spread of any belief system in the world. And that is only increasing. China is the global center of atheism today. But the church in China is growing so fast that experts believe that by 2025 there will be more Christians in China than in America and that by 2060 China could be a majority Christian country. At that point, 40% of the world's Christians are expected to be living in sub-Saharan Africa. Now this shouldn't surprise us the first century Jewish man we worship broke through every racial and cultural barrier of his day, and he commanded his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, and they began at once. We meet the first African Christian in the book of Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch of Acts chapter 8. And Ethiopia actually went on to become one of the first officially Christian states in the world before St. Patrick ever went to Ireland and a 1,000 years before the gospel came to America. So what about in America today? Well, black Americans are at least 10 percentage points more likely to identify as Christians than their white peers. And they would score higher on every indicator of evangelical commitment, from regular church attendance to Bible reading to prayer to core evangelical beliefs. Latina and Latino Americans are also more likely to identify as Christians. And immigrants of color are planting evangelical churches across this great nation. So I live in in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And in Somerville, which is one of the adjacent cities, English is the third most commonly spoken language at evangelical churches, after Portuguese and Creole. Some white Americans worry that immigration is eroding America's Christian heritage. But actually, immigration is a much-needed blood transfusion for the American church. Now, this flips the paradigm for our non-Christian friends. My non-Christian friends care deeply about diversity. And when they hear the word evangelism, they imagine white Westerners... Forcing their beliefs down other people's throats. But when they realize that most Christians are not white Westerners, and increasingly most evangelists are not white Westerners either, the exclusive message of the gospel becomes harder to dismiss. You see, when, when Mr. Ilisanmi said to those white British police officers that Jesus was the only way, the truth, and the life, He wasn't saying, my culture's cooking is better than yours. He was saying, I was starving too, till I found bread. So let's reclaim diversity. Because Christianity is the most multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multicultural movement in all of history. Second, we must reclaim the university. A few years ago, I took a friend of mine who was a Jewish atheist science professor at Harvard to an event at Harvard where New Testament theologian N.T. Wright was in dialogue with the agnostic chair of the Harvard philosophy department. The title of the event was The Bible, Gospel Guide or Garbage? And after the event, I said to my friend, I know that you think that what I believe is crazy. His then-girlfriend, who was a much gentler soul than either of us, said, Oh, I'm sure he doesn't think that. I said, Yes, he does. I believe that the entirety of human history revolves around a first-century Jewish man who died on a cross and was supposedly raised from the dead three days later. Crazy, right? My friend said, Yes. I said, The problem is, I think that you believe some crazy things as well. See, our non-Christian friends, they think that they are choosing between Christianity with all its crazy beliefs and a perfectly coherent secular worldview that does all the work that Christianity does for them without them having to believe in crazy things. But there is no such belief system. And in the next generation, the university in the West is going to have to start reckoning with Christianity again. Fan Geng is a leading sociologist of religion in China. And he argues that the university in the West is going to have to go through a paradigm shift, much like a scientific revolution, and he uses that language, when the failure of a secularization hypothesis comes home to roost. You see, for decades, universities in the West have been treating the idea that the world is becoming less religious not just as a diagnosis, but as a prescription. It's not just what will happen, but what should happen. So what is going to happen when Western intellectuals discover that it hasn't happened? And atheism, far from being the belief system of diversity and progress, is actually the belief system of white Western men and communist regimes. My friends, between now And when my kids are in college, there's going to be an earthquake in the university. Now this should excite us. But it shouldn't surprise us. Because Christians invented the university. And universities like Harvard and Yale and Oxford and Cambridge were specifically founded to bring glory to God. Christians have written some of the greatest literature of all time. Christians have dreamt up some of the greatest philosophy of all time. And what's most surprising, both to our non Christian friends, but sometimes to us as Christians as well, Christians literally invented the modern scientific method, not as an alternative hypothesis to belief in God, but because they believed in a creator God who is both rational and free. Now, the person I've learned most about this from is your president's little brother, Hans Halverson. As President Halverson mentioned, Hans is a professor at Princeton University. He's probably one of the top four philosophers of science in the world, without any family bias playing in here. He, like, legit is. And he argues that not only is it the case that Christians historically invented what we now call science... But that even today, theism provides a firmer philosophical foundation for science than atheism does. In fact, Hans says, atheism doesn't provide a philosophical foundation for science at all. If you come back tomorrow morning, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Now, are there complex theological questions that we Christians need to grapple with in light of modern science? For sure. But Christians have always been leaders in science, and Bible-believing Christians have always been on both sides of every supposedly science-versus-faith controversy. So let's not concede science to atheism. Instead, let's find the thousands of Christian professors at top universities across the world, and let's learn from them. Let's reclaim the university in this next generation not as a hostile takeover but as a homecoming. Because Christianity is an anti intellectual. It's the greatest intellectual movement in all of history. Third, we must reclaim morality. I'm reviewing a book at the moment that is so big that it wasn't going to fit in my carry-on luggage or I would have brought it to you to show you how fat it is. It's by an atheist British historian called Tom Holland. And it's called Dominion. It's got different subtitles in, in the US and the UK, but I think in America it's Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And in it, Tom Holland is making the argument that if you look back at the history of ideas, you will find that things that we today think of our self-evident moral truths, for example, that all human beings are equally valuable, or that people starving in the slums in Calcutta can make moral demands on us here now, or that men and women are equally morally valuable, these are not self-evident truths. These are specific inheritances from Christianity. And this is a historical case being made by a man who is not a Christian or even a believer in Last year I I reviewed a a book uh, by Notre Dame Professor Christian Smith. I commend it to you. If you're like on the slightly nerdier end, you don't have to be like Uber nerd, but just slightly nerdier, I commend this book to you. It's called Atheist Overreach, What Atheism Cannot Deliver. And it's a serious academic book. It's published by Oxford University Press. And in it, Christian Smith is examining the arguments of today's leading atheist and agnostic thinkers. And asking the question, are they actually giving us compelling, rational reasons for their beliefs? In particular, their high moral beliefs in in universal human rights and human equality and uh, the, the fact that we have an obligation to care for the poor and the weak and the marginalized. And this is what Professor Smith concludes. Atheists, it seems to me, are perfectly entitled to believe in and act to promote universal benevolence and human rights but only as an arbitrary subjective personal preference not as a rational compelling universally binding fact and obligation. In other words what what Smith is saying is that atheist intellectuals can say I don't like rape but only in the same of way that I can say I don't like olives it's a subjective personal preference not a universally binding fact or obligation now the fact that atheism does not ground our core moral beliefs those beliefs that we would share with our least Christian friends today that was a realisation that dawned gradually for one of the few people who knew both me and my husband before we knew each other My friend Sarah Irving-Stonebracker is now a history professor in Australia, where she comes from. She was a convinced atheist when she went to Cambridge to do her PhD. She was a convinced atheist when she went to Oxford to do her postdoc. But while she was at Oxford, she went to a series of lectures by a fellow Australian and another Princeton philosophy professor, Peter Singer. Now, Peter Singer is a very smart man and a very consistent atheist, and he argues that we need to stop considering all human beings to be equally morally valuable simply because they're human, but that instead we should evaluate beings, human or otherwise, on the basis of their capacities. For example, their capacity um, to suffer or their capacity for for self-knowledge and awareness. And by Singer's calculation, a human infant is less morally valuable than an adult cow. As my friend Sarah heard this, she experienced what she later described as a kind of intellectual vertigo as she realized that her atheism cut against her deepest moral beliefs. And that started a process which ended in her giving her life to Jesus. Now, we need to be very careful. We, we must never say to our non-Christian friends that we think that we are better than they are. We cannot come to Christ with our pride intact, and I don't think that we can share Christ that way either. I believe that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And we must be very real and honest about the terrible sins and mistakes that Christians have made over the past 2,000 years we must also be real about two other things. First, we only recognise those as terrible sins and mistakes because of the belief system that Christianity has given to us and our non-Christian friends. And second, that despite all the failures and inadequacies and indwelling sin that you and I grapple with every day and that you and I read about in the newspapers every day as Christian after Christian disgraces the name of Christ with their behaviour, Despite these things, it is nonetheless the case that regular church attendance is well correlated with pro-social behavior. So if you look in America, people who go to church once a week or more give 3.5 times as much money to charity as their secular friends. They volunteer twice as much they're half as likely to engage in domestic violence and they're less likely to commit at least 43 other crimes. It's probably more than that, but only 43 actually other crimes have been assessed. So in a hurting world, let's reclaim morality like divers pulling treasure from a wreck and let's flee self-righteousness like toxic waste. Fourth, we must reclaim sexuality. When Snape killed Dumbledore, all doubt in the reader's mind as to whether he was on the side of good or evil died as well. And when we stand for Christian sexual ethics, we move over in our friends' minds from delusion to bigotry. Opposition to same-sex marriage for Christians today is seen as equivalent to opposition to mixed-race marriage. It's morally repugnant, and it puts us on the wrong side of history. So how can we turn this devastating roadblock into a signpost to Christ? When Harry dived into Snape's memories, he found not a story of hate, but a story of love. And when we dive into what the scriptures have to tell us about sexuality, we find that it's a love story too. This love song begins in the Old Testament as prophet after prophet compares God to a faithful, loving husband, and Israel to his often unfaithful wife. It takes a fresh turn when Jesus steps onto the stage of human history and declares himself to be the bridegroom. Do you remember that strange claim that he makes? In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul presents human marriage as a little scale model of Jesus' love for his people. And in the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, we see a a great multitude saying that the the wedding of the Lamb has come, and Jesus' marriage to his church brings heaven and earth back together. is why marriage is male and female and why husbands and wives are called to different roles. Like Christ and the church, it's a love across difference. Like Christ and the church, it's a love built on sacrifice. Like Christ and the church, it's a life-creating, f- flesh-uniting, never-ending, exclusive love. Marriage is meant to point us to Christ. It's also meant to disappoint us. Because even the best human marriage could only ever be a tiny echo of Jesus' love for us. And let's not forget, Christian marriage was actually highly countercultural from the first. In the Greco-Roman world, men were not expected to be faithful to their wives, let alone to lay themselves down in sacrificial love for them it was fine for men to sleep with other women and often other men as well. No wonder the majority of the first Christians were women. No wonder the church throughout history and today has been majority women. My friends often see Christianity as the epicenter of misogyny. But actually Christianity is the greatest movement of and for women in all of history. And there's an irony here. See, the sexual revolution of the 1960s was sold to us as the liberation of women. For centuries, men had been finding ways to sort of sneak around Christian marriage and have commitment-free sex. And great news, because of the pill, now women could as well. But despite advances in freedom and opportunity for women in the last 60 years, women's self-reported happiness in America has actually declined. Why is that? I believe that part of the answer is that commitment-free sex is a poison chalice. For both men and for women, stable marriage is correlated with multiple mental and physical health benefits. But for women in particular, actually increasing our number of sexual partners is correlated with decreases in mental health outcomes, including increased... um, Depression and sadness increased suicidal ideation increased drug abuse none of this is to say that, that female sexuality doesn't matter quite the reverse but commitment free sex turns out to be a poison chalice there's a professor up at Dartmouth College near where I live who's not a Christian at all and he did a study of sex and happiness and one of his conclusions was that the happiness maximizing number of sexual partners in the last year, you can tell he's an economist because he thinks in these terms, the happiness maximizing number of sexual partners in the last year, guess what? One. So let's not lose confidence in Christian marriage. But we must also remember this. Marriage is not the only relationship that is designed to teach us about Jesus' love. Greater love has no one than this, said Jesus, than that he lay down his life for his friends. People often say the Bible condemns same-sex relationships. I disagree. I think the Bible commands same-sex relationships... At a level of intimacy that we Christians seldom reach. The New Testament calls us one body, brothers and sisters, knit together in love, comrades in arms. Paul calls his friend Anisimus his very heart. And he says he was among the Thessalonians like a nursing mother with her children. None of this is sexual, all of this is ours in Christ. And if we're going to reclaim sexuality in this next generation, I believe we must reclaim fierce, abiding, non-erotic, non-romantic love. Now, I'm not meaning to make out that any of this is easy or straightforward. I myself have been romantically attracted to women since childhood. If I were not a Christian, I think it's highly likely I'd be married to a woman today instead of being married to a man. I've been happily married to a man for 12 and a half years. You may look at me and you think, well, that's kind of weird. And it turns out I'm not actually as weird as you think. Well, I mean, I am as weird as you think, but not for those reasons. (laughs) I'm actually the most typical kind of same-sex attracted person, i.e. a woman who is attracted to people of her same sex, but not exclusively so to where she couldn't possibly have that kind of relationship with a man. turns out about 14% of women experience same-sex attraction to some significant degree, but only 1% are exclusively attracted to other women. For men, it's about 7% who experience same-sex attraction, 2% who are exclusively attracted to other men. And what's more, there's good data to suggest that people's patterns of attraction can actually change in the course of their lifetimes, in either direction. The woman who's pioneered a lot of this research is a woman named Lisa Diamond, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Utah. And she is herself a lesbian activist. Uh, and so some of the conclusions that she's drawn have actually been quite unsettling to her. But the way she summarizes things, she says, when we divide people into straight and gay, we're not actually cutting nature at its joints. We're kind of imposing some joints on a, on a very messy phenomenon. But what does this mean for us? This does not mean that people don't experience persistent and unchanging patterns of attraction in the course of their lives. Many people do. Nor does it mean that we choose our attractions. We don't. But we do choose our actions. And in that sense, actually, every single person in this room is in the same boat. All of us, at some point in our lives, whether it is daily or once a decade, are likely to experience attraction to somebody we're not married to. Am I right? Thank you. (laughs) The question is not, will we ever be attracted to someone we're not married to? The question is, will we submit our attractions to Christ? And one of the ways in which we need to grow as a Christian community is to grow in the ways that we actually specifically love and support people who experience same-sex attraction. You see, for, for too long, it's been easier in our churches to confess a pornography addiction than to confess same-sex attraction. We've let our brothers and sisters shiver in the dark, thinking that they're weird and unwanted and unloved. And if you want to pour paraffin on sexual temptation, what do you do? leave someone alone. So part of our mission in the next generation is to make our Christian communities places where same-sex attracted Christians are embraced and encouraged in their discipleship. You see, people today are blocking their ears to the gospel because they think that we're homophobic bigots. The same-sex attracted Christians In our churches, particularly those who remain single out of devotion to Jesus, are our God given SWAT team to burst through those defenses. Because in, in our culture today, there is no more powerful way to point to the sufficiency of Christ, there is no more powerful way to say that Jesus is beautiful. Than to turn away from your own romantic and sexual fulfillment because you believe in a better love. So, as we go out into the world with a message of the gospel, we must reclaim diversity, we must reclaim the university, we must reclaim morality, and we must reclaim sexuality. But we must do all of these things with humility. We must repent of the ways that we have allowed racism to thrive in our churches. We must repent of the ways that we have abandoned the life of the mind. And we must repent of the actual homophobia that has infected our churches and communities for years. We need to take a hard turn toward the scriptures and a hard turn away from ourselves. Because Jesus is not a relic of the ancient world. He is our modern world's best hope. said a lot of very controversial things quite quickly. So I'd love to hear questions, thoughts, objections, points of clarification from you guys. If you didn't understand a word I said because of my English accent, I'm terribly sorry. I asked the guys at the sound desk if they could just like filter out the Englishness but they said that was too hard. (laughs) Other than just turning me off, like muting. That would have been a thing. I think somebody else Can you talk more about um, how Christians retake the university? Mm. Sure, yeah. Um, I think one of the things, it it starts from the ground up. I have a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old, and a -a one-and-a-half-year-old. And one of the things I want to instill in my kids is this idea that Christianity is the greatest intellectual movement in all of history. And one of the things that means is that it's not just okay for them to ask questions, it's actually vital. That they do that i had a sweet moment with my second daughter a few years ago um, when she was five and it was before christmas we we're reading the the story of um, gabriel telling mary that she's going to have baby jesus uh, my five-year-old says um yeah i don't i don't think i believe that i was like okay um so do you believe that there's a god who created the universe she's like oh yeah no, no i believe that So, you know, do you believe that Jesus came and died? Yeah, 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 I believe that. Turned out it was the angel thing that she wasn't buying. And I was really glad that rather than being like, yeah, yeah, mum, whatever, keep reading the Christmas story. You know, you could tell me about Santa. You could tell me about Jesus. I'll kind of go along with it, whatever it is. I was really glad that she was saying, ah, angels, I don't know about that. So... If and when you guys get to the point of of raising kids, by the way, I'm a big fan, I think what the scriptures say about singleness is massively underrated, so I often tell my kids, I do not expect you to grow up and get married and have kids. If you do great, if you don't, great. I'm with you all the way. That's a whole other talk. (laughs) Um, But I think one of the things is, is from the ground up, Christians should be the most intellectually curious folks in town. Now, how this plays out at the university level can go in a couple of different directions. One is what you guys are doing here now, under the leadership of somebody like President Halverson, who, like, legit cares about the life of the mind and is legit a follower of Jesus, and he's bringing those two things together not as if they're sort of opposing magnets, but as if they're like, incredibly attracted to each other. And so, so folks like you, working really hard because you're Christians, okay? Sometimes we take the fact that we're Christians to mean that, ah, it doesn't matter too much if we work hard in school, We'll be fine, Jesus loves us. No, 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 no. We should be studious and industrious, whether we're at a Christian college or whether we're in a in sort a of secular university. I don't even like that to them. Um, I do think that we need to find the Christian professors at secular universities and give them a voice and a platform. So to go back to Hans Helverson, I mean, the, the delight that I find in just having unearthed some of these folks and said, hey, you have incredibly important things to say to the world. I don't just want to hear from Richard Dawkins all day long, I also want to hear from Hans Halverson and all the incredible men and women who got us raised up. So I think finding those people listening to them and just not being not being afraid as if as if our faith is this like little fragile thing that we've got to protect from all those big scary ideas. Oh no. Jesus is the biggest, scariest idea in the history of the world, and no big scary ideas that anyone else can fling at him is gonna deflect him for a minute. <clears> oh, <throat> I should have said this. In q and I always take a question from the guy and then a question from a girl and alternate. So there better be a girl who wants to ask a question now. Yes. Lady down here. Uh, when you mentioned strong Christian community outside of marriage, one mm-hmm. of the first things I thought of was literally last Sunday, um, my pastor... Was connecting with some of the college students, and he only gave his phone number to one of the guys that I go to church with, mm-hmm. and I was kind of like, ouch! Like, okay, you don't want to know me, but like, it, it was basically like this idea of like, well, he's a man, mm-hmm. you're a young girl, like, we just want to like draw mm-hmm. fine lines. Um, so, how do you think the kind of hyper awareness of like sexual abuse and exploitation plays yeah. into what? Christian community looks like going yeah. forward. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So one of the complexities that, that we have to na- navigate is the fact that there are and can be differences between cross-gender relationships of whatever kind and, and same-gender relationships of whatever kind. And actually, I think one of the reasons why God gives us boundaries in the scriptures and says, actually, 50% of the human race are just simply not available to you as sexual partners, like full stop under any circumstances, that is not to deprive us of of something really good. It's actually to give us something really good. It gives us incredible freedom for a different kind of intimacy that we can have with with folks of our same sex. And as I said, I think the Bible is very strong on that. I don't think that means that we can't also have friendships across, you know, male to female. I, I do think that there are times where we need to be wise and sensitive towards each other in that. Um, I don't know if you guys may have heard of the sort of Billy Graham rule, uh, the, the principle that, that some Christian men have adopted of saying, I'm never going to be alone with a woman, whether it's because that's something that they might find problematic or whether the perception could be that that's problematic. And there are ways in which that has ended up, you know, unfortunately, disenfranchising some women because often it's men who are maybe more powerful and senior, and so not granting access to those kinds of even mentoring relationships can can be tough for women. So I think there are clearly kind of negatives that can come out of that approach. At the same time, I do think that we need to be real about our own weaknesses, and there are certain situations I wouldn't want to put myself in because of my knowledge of my own weaknesses, and to some extent if somebody else is making that call for themselves, I'm like good on you, brother. Like, I I respect and affirm that. Now, I think having said all those things, one of the beautiful pictures we have in the Bible is the idea of family. And unless something has gone terribly wrong in a family, which sadly it can, families are a place of non-sexual intimacy between siblings, between parents and, and children. And that is something that we, as a community, can model within the church, and can kind of do together. Now, exactly what that will look like will depend on the culture and the context and the individuals, but I think leaning more into that idea of family and saying, hey, you are, like, I've never met you before, but you are actually my sister, and that means that you have some legitimate claims on me and vice versa, and the gentleman next to you is legit my brother, I'm assuming you guys are following Lord. If not, we'll talk after. Um, <laughs> that, that means something, and so I wouldn't want to prescribe in a very specific situation, but I do think we need to do a little reframe in our minds of like, okay, we, we've got to fight for family and church. Yes. Oh, sorry. Yes, hi. So what does it look like in terms of helping and accepting people with same-sex attraction in terms of like everyday practicality? Because I, I know a lot of people personally who – either are in same-sex relationships or have those attractions. So what does that look like in terms of everyday practicality of loving them but also being able to witness to them, give them the gospel, yeah. et cetera? Yeah, great question. So it, it seems from the way you ended that question, you're talking about people who are not Christians versus people who are and who are like, seeking to follow Jesus in community with us, which is a different kind of thing. Yeah, okay. So um, – with friends of, of mine who are, who are not Christians and who um, are in gay relationships of, of various kinds, first thing I have to remind myself is their problem is, is that they're not following Jesus actually, not that, that they're in a gay marriage or a gay relationship. Like my, my happily heterosexually married non-Christian friends are just as lost as my happily gay married non-Christian friends. So, you know, that's the sort of first thing that we, we need to not have this two tier system in our minds. Um, I think the mantra of love is love is, is, is very powerful, and I want to use it positively for a second to say we all know how to love people, right? And and we extend that kind of love then to you friends who are in gay relationships. Um, it means listening to people. It, laughing at their jokes, it means inviting them over for dinner, it means spending time with them, it means all the things that love means but I think it also means us thinking through, okay what is the gospel message at the heart of what the Bible says about sexuality and I tried to touch on, on some of that a few minutes ago because we often think, oh, I want to tell my friends about Jesus but I really hope they don't ask me anything about sexuality because like that's just I, I kind of know the Bible says no to some things, but I don't really know why or how that connects up, and it just seems like a thing getting in the way of this gospel conversation. And I don't, almost want to say, actually, the Bible sexual ethics are at heart a proclamation of the gospel, because it, it's really about Jesus and, and his church. I mean, if you think about it, God, God could have created just one kind of human, and he could have had us, like, I don't know, amoebas who you, like, self-replicate. Or every 20 years, he could have just created a fresh batch of humans out of nothing. Instead, he, he created male and female, and he created the possibility of sex, and he created, like, babies, to tell us something about himself. And, and we're much more familiar with the idea that, that the metaphor of fatherhood in the Bible teaches us about God's relationship with us than we are with the idea that, that the metaphor of marriage teaches us about Jesus' love for us. And so I think we probably all need to spend some time just reflecting ourselves, dwelling ourselves on on the gospel message that's at the heart of biblical sexual ethics, so that when that conversation comes up with friends who are not Christians, we kind of want want to be saying, actually, Christian sexual ethics is weirder than you think. I mean, I know you think it's kind of weird. It's a whole lot weirder than you think, because we think it's actually all about Jesus and his people. It's about Jesus' love for us. And none of Christian sexual ethics really makes sense without that at the center. Next. I need a lady. I'm relying on somebody to tell me when this stops. Okay, I'm just going to keep going, otherwise hours we could go. <laughs> so I was curious at the same question. What about when you're dealing with Christian friends? who deny that homosexuality is against the scriptures. How do you deal with relationships like that, I guess? Yeah, Yeah. that's a very good question and a really hard one. So again, the starting point is love. Let me explain. Sometimes we think as Christians, love to another person means telling them that we we think what they're doing is is right and never actually challenging That is not what Christian love means. See, one of the responsibilities we as Christians have toward each other, and I I experience this in my daily life with close friends, is gently calling out each other's sin. Now, we do this in all sorts of areas of life, or we we should be doing this. We should be saying to people, hey, because I love and care about you, I've sort of noticed that there's this thing happening in your life that doesn't seem to me to be aligned with, with your Christian beliefs. And because I love and care about you, I want to help you sort of think through that and and navigate away from that. Now, that's something that's particularly tricky for us to do in conversation with a friend who experiences same-sex attraction and has either um, decided to pursue that or is sort of considering pursuing that uh, as a Christian. But it's, it's actually vital that we do because the most undermining thing that a straight Christian can do to a same-sex attracted Christian is tell them that the Bible doesn't really say what the Bible does in fact say we are not loving a friend by saying yeah actually I think if you look carefully at the Bible again you will find that same-sex marriage is is okay for Christians Um, funnily enough I don't know if anybody was here um, went to an event last weekend with my friend Rachel Gilson who was Speaking um, about some of these issues, I think, to a, to a smaller group here. And, and Rocha has a really interesting story. She came to Christ when she was an undergrad at Yale, having grown up in an atheist or like totally non-religious family, um, after her girlfriend of several years broke up with her. And she was completely devastated by this. And it kind of got her thinking about the big questions of life. Uh, and she went to talk to two friends who identified as Christians. They were the only people identifying as Christians she knew. And they were a lesbian couple, and one of them was training to be a Lutheran minister. And so my friend went to them and said, like, hey, I, you know, clearly you guys have this figured out. Can you help me? Because I'm sort of getting vaguely interested in maybe this Jesus thing. And our friends gave her this packet of information about how really the Bible doesn't say what Christians have always said it says about um, same-sex um, sexual relationships. And, you know, it's all been a big misunderstanding. So... Rachel goes back to her room, reads this packet. She's like, this looks great, so excited. Maybe I could become a Christian. And then she started looking up the Bible passages that this booklet was referencing. And she was like, oh, this doesn't add up. Now, that was 16 years ago, before she learned Greek and Hebrew. She now reads the Bible every day in Greek and Hebrew. And she is even more convinced now that the Bible really does say what Christians have been saying it says for the last 2,000 years. And and at times in her early discipleship, when she was falling into sexual sin, what she needed from her friends was grace and truth. She did not need to be hit over the head and sort of told that she had failed and to be rejected. But she also really didn't need her friends to say, well, maybe this isn't such a big deal. She needed grace and truth. Probably the last one. Last question for the man. That's a lot of pressure. Um, Make it a good one. I'm just, I'm just curious how you narrowed down to the 12 questions that you narrowed down in the book, and were there any that you were maybe considering including that you excluded, or what that process was like? You know, I'm, um, I'm like an ENFP on the Myers Briggs thing, if you've, has anybody done it. Thank you, thank you. Which means that I'm kind of like spontaneous. So I sat down one day and I said, okay. Here are the big questions I think. Blah, 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 and I wrote down 12. I was like, oh, 12, that's a nice number. That's a biblical number. And then, as I've tested that out in different orders, I've been like, okay, tell me what are the big questions you hear. And pretty much always it converges on these. Now, slight caveat, I've just written a, a kid's version of the book for 10 to 14-year-olds. Um, and one of the things that has changed in the last two years since when I wrote Confronting Christianity to Now when I'm writing... Ten questions every kid should ask and answer about Christianity. Long name. Publisher says it'll work. I don't know. I've actually uh, said a lot more um, connected to transgender issues than I did two years ago. And so I think that's a big big thing that is, not that it wasn't present two years ago, but actually a a big conversation that's um, really gathered steam in the last two years. So I think if I were writing the adult version fresh again today, I would probably spend more time on that. Um, there are certain things, that important questions, of course, that were not addressed in the book, partly because I'm not qualified to address them, um, and partly because you know, you've got to stop somewhere. But I, my hope is that as you look at the book, you're thinking, yeah, that covers, that hits on most of the things that I fear being asked by my friends.